0: Welcome to episode 12 of the AHPBA podcast. Before we get to this episode, a couple of announcements from the AHPBA. First, registration is now open for the AHPBA 2021 annual meeting in Miami this August. The plan is for this to be an in-person meeting from August 2nd to 5th and I know we are all very excited to get back to in-person meetings. More details are available at AHPBA.org or check your emails. Second, The Junior Surgeons Committee will be planning a Meet the Mentor session at the annual meeting in August. We are looking for mentor volunteers, and a link is available on the AHPBA Newswire, accessible on the AHPBA website homepage. There will be more Junior Surgeons Committee initiatives coming through, so please pay attention to your emails or the website if you'd like to get involved. In this episode, we have the honor of interviewing Dr. Mike D'Angelica from Memorial Sloan Kettering. Dr. Mike D'Angelica requires no introduction. However, here's our shot. He's the program director of both the HPB and surgical oncology fellowships at Memorial Sloan Kettering. He is the Enid A. Hop Chair in Surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And finally, he is the current president of the HPBA. Dr. D'Angelica is widely published with hundreds of peer reviewed publications, but is very well known for his work surrounding the treatment of colorectal liver metastases. Dr. D'Angelica and his group at Memorial have been pioneers and some of the biggest proponents of the use of hepatic arterial infusion pump therapy for the treatment of colorectal liver metastases. In this episode, we took a deep dive into the use of pump chemotherapy and more broadly, Dr. D'Angelica's approach to the treatment of patients with colorectal liver metastases. Also, he told us his history and life story and how he got to this point, which is incredibly inspiring. Given that Tim and I trained at MD Anderson this was a great crash course into the use of this modality and its increasingly broad applicability. This episode should be of interest to everyone from early trainees to attending surgeons wanting to learn more about pump chemotherapy. We really enjoyed this interview as evidenced by the fact that it went for over an hour and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Without further ado Dr. Mike Angelica.
1: So we're back with the HPBA podcast, and today we're very honored to have uh, Mike D'Angelica from Memorial Sloan Kettering here with us today. Uh, A name we've had on our list from the very beginning, Tim and I, as you know, trained at MD Anderson. Uh, So the the liver paradigm is a little bit different than the Memorial paradigm. And so we're very excited to talk to you and get a different perspective, especially on hepatic artery infusion pumps and your approach to colorectal liver metastases. Uh, And then we'll talk about a few other things as well. So thank you for your time. We're excited to have you.
2: Thank you, guys. It's really an honor to be here. I, I am really excited to connect with a lot of people and uh, and I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, Of course. Yeah.
1: So, you know, the first thing that we usually cover is kind of how you got to where you are. So um, I think your story will be very interesting to the audience uh, where you trained and then uh, you've been at Memorial for a long time. So if you have any interesting stories about your training and how you got hired there and things like that, we'd love to hear it.
2: Oh, my journey is looking back, it seems so long. Uh, I mean, I I really came from a working class family Uh, doing what I do now I never would have imagined as a kid, for sure. When I was a little kid, my father was a Mason and um, probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me was that I got into a good college, (laughs) not to speak to young kids, but uh, honestly, that's where I first started learning the very bits, the first bits of academia. Um, people who were really interested in learning and it's where I sort of got the bug to to learn it certainly wasn't in high school um, and uh, ultimately uh went to Tufts medical school and um I, I would say I was a mediocre medical student uh it wasn't my interest to be a medical uh, I I thrived in surgery because it was the only place that let me just go and do things on my own you know rounding in medicine was not my thing and it didn't I was fascinated by the diseases and love to read about it. In fact, I thought a lot about going into medicine because I found it more interesting than surgery from a topical point of view, but um, the practice of medicine didn't appeal to me at all, and the practice of surgery really did. Um, I ended up training at the University of Connecticut uh, in Hartford where um, I would say I had tremendous clinical training. By the time I had finished my clinical training, I, I really felt like I could handle anything in a trauma room, and an operating room, for that level of training, in an operating room, uh, in an ICU, you know, sticking lines in just about any person or thing from anywhere. Um, but in the middle of that, I made this decision to go to to do research. And honestly, it's even hard for me to remember exactly how I made that decision. I think there was a senior president that I really respected who had done it and was going off to do great things. And, um, and I thought it'd be a good idea. And I, And of course, I ended up doing a two-year fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering, doing research with Murray Brennan and Yuman Fong, and uh, a guy named Mike Bird, who's unfortunately since passed, um, and just really got interested in cancer and academia and, and clinical research and basic science research. Um, and I would say, if you look at my career now, probably that two-year fellowship probably determined everything. because. From there, I finished residency, and then obviously gave me an advantage to get into this fellowship at Sloan Kettering, um, where things just continued to to uh, to grow. And um, I, I would say when I trained, I think most people when they meet me think of me as an HPV surgeon. But I, when I trained, that was really not my goal. In fact, when I was hired by Leslie Bloomgard in 2002, my biggest fear what I was was that I would be overspecialized. I mean, my vision back then, this is 18 years ago, was to be a, a diverse surgical oncologist um, who could do anything. I, I was really, I love general surgery. I love the idea of someone who could do anything. And I've actually become the opposite of that. I've become a fairly useless general surgeon and, uh, you know, really comfortable in one quadrant of the abdomen. But um, I was really afraid of it. Uh, and at the time, it wasn't. As well uh, accepted a specialty, HPB surgery. It really wasn't. It was There were very few HPB surgeons around, very few centers uh, that, that did it with any significant volume. And so, uh, uh, but obviously I stuck with it. And then, sort of, I, I really primarily think of myself as a surgical oncologist and secondarily think of myself as an HPB surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then the career of Memorial Song Kettering, people always you know, wonder why do you stay there so long? And it, it's a place with so many great people that you're surrounded by and so much constant intellectual stimulation. Um, it's one of the few places I think that you don't need some big title to, to number one, have a successful career, but number two to be feel really fulfilled about your career. And, um, you know, I've been blessed with this ability to have a, a very highly specialized practice and have uh, academic opportunities that are that are truly unique. So um, mm-hmm. it's an amazing place. I often get criticized by some of my colleagues at Memorial and Kettering. I give too much credit to the institution, but I really feel the institution brings great people together. Uh, and that combination has been fantastic for me. Okay. That's, well, that's uh, my journey very quickly.
3: <laughs> um, so I remember, just to keep on one of the things you just said there, I remember at the Fellows Institute, one year when I was a fellow, you, you, you kind of told a little bit more of the story about how you got your first job and, and, and your interaction with getting the job. Could you elaborate on a little bit more? Like, did you choose liver or was liver given to you or, cause now you're like, you know, Mr. Liver.
2: Or <laughs> well, once I started, you mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, when I first started, what I was asked to focus on was minimally invasive surgery and, and ablation. But it, you know, we developed intraoperative ablation, but it but it wasn't the primary focus, and I couldn't shift it away from IR, uh, which yeah you know really took that over. So that didn't you know. Yes, we used intraoperative ablation, and we developed that, but but much like many other places, I wouldn't say it was that unique. Um, <laughs> you know, so much of what happens in life is serendipity. I could easily make up a story that it was my goal and it was my you know my my passion and. But that would be a bunch of bull. I mean, a number of things happened. Um, at a certain point, Yuman Fong actually moved over to another service, and he had done a lot of the metastatic colorectal cancer. And around that time, I started to have a clinic and do a lot of clinical research with Nancy Kemeny. And I think people always focus on the surgeons that are your mentors, but she was an unbelievable mentor. for I me. Mean, she got me involved in her trials, taught me a tremendous amount of her patients, and um, you know, uh, I, I do plenty of pancreas surgery. Of course, I just don't write about it, but, uh, you know, we, we tend to focus on it. But I, I, um, I, I think it was just where opportunities were. If I were to summarize what I can do well, it's take advantage of, of opportunity. Uh, and, and if that opportunity had been pancreas or that opportunity had been gastric cancer, I probably would have jumped on it uh, the same way that I did with liver surgery and metastatic colorectal cancer. Um, So I I think it was just people moving around, opportunities presenting themselves, and being open to them. Because for me, my focus was on cancer and answering questions. Mm -hmm. Period.
3: So actually, you you mentioned a a great name I wanted to touch on as well, Dr. Kemeny. How about we talk about that a little bit more as we move towards talking about um, hepatic arterial infusion and um, and that topic? Because that goes back a long way um, and clearly – very very much pioneered by um, your institution and your group um, I'd love to hear the the story of that where that started
2: yeah it is interesting. there wasn't time when many institutions are doing hepatic artery chemotherapy in the 1980s right. um, uh, be, but because of technical problems morbidity issues and um, and the fact that better systemic chemotherapy came along it was abandoned in, in a lot in most of those places um, mm-hmm. but Nancy kemeny um, it's very interesting. First of all, she is a, a woman who developed an amazingly successful um, practice in oncology when there were not a lot of women. Um, you know, she talks a lot about what it was like to have children as a young attending, and it was not very straightforward in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody knew how to manage. You know, um, a woman who had to go out and have a baby and raise an infant for a short period of time, and she uh, she really gives an amazing perspective on it. She's also a tremendous case study in perseverance. What I think she did, she, when she started, she was asked to tackle colorectal cancer. And this is what she would say. This is what she's told me many times. She said, you, you'll take on colorectal cancer. That's what our division chief told her. And, and all there was was 5-FU. And she was a medical oncologist. And she knew it didn't do very much. And it was toxic. And she got really interested in regional chemotherapy because she could see right away in the patients that it worked more frequently. Uh, and she wasn't put off by some of the morbidity. She wasn't put off by most, the, the difficulties, which are obvious about how to do this. And she partnered with surgeons. Most people don't realize this, but at the beginning of pump chemotherapy in, uh, I guess, 80s and 90s, the colorectal service really started. John Daly mm-hmm. who uh, and Eileen uh, uh, Sigurdsson were the, on the colorectal service at the time and partnered. And so she really developed a, multidis- a multidisciplinary approach. And then what she really did, when Better Chemotherapy came along for colorectal cancer, she did not abandon her idea. She just decided to sort of combine things rather than abandon one and accept the other. Right. And what you're seeing now, and I'm sure we'll talk about more later, is that the truth is she, she saw something that others couldn't see, I think. And she stuck with it. And I think the hardest thing to do is to stick with something when everyone else is telling you what's wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That's really hard. And that's a special kind of courage that's seen in academia. Um, it's funny. I was just reading about a woman who was a basic scientist who was developing mRNA technology that of course we're all very familiar with because we're all about to get <laughs> vaccinated with it. Yeah. But I think she was at UPenn and couldn't get funded and, and couldn't get uh, a lot of support for her work <laughs> She she made up for the Nobel Prize uh, because wow. of her work yeah, back, no job. and she saw something wow. that others couldn't see, and so Nancy really did that. Um, and when I think about that story about someone who stuck with something that when everybody else told them it was wrong, I also think of Leslie Bloomgard, because Leslie Bloomgard pioneered pioneered a major hepatic resection for for hilar and there are quotes in publication that say saying that he was only doing that for his own ego; he wasn't doing it for the patients. Mm-hmm. And he was told by many people that this was dangerous and wrong. And uh, now it's, of course, considered the operation that he helped pioneer is considered standard. You wouldn't think of it any other way. Yet for years, he was told not to do it. And that's a special kind of courage. Both yeah, very inspiring people in my, in my well, I would say professional life, but I would say my personal life as well. Yeah,
3: very fortunate to, to have that, you know, those people bringing you along. It's incredible inspiration yeah, for sure.
2: For sure.
1: Yeah. You know, kind of on that topic, um, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of the agents that are used and kind of what your current um, thoughts are on, you know, when you're putting a pump in, what agents are you using and what are you combining it with?
2: Yeah. So, you know, that's a, you know, a very funny topic because we use an ancient uh, chemotherapeutic agent called fluxuridine. It's yeah. literally pennies. Um, it's generic, uh, uh, and okay. the, it, it, the, the reason why I'm using it is a very simple one, as you, you two probably know, but it was actually studied in the beginning. Um, it was unclear what agents should be done. And actually, in the 1950s, Memorial Sloan Kettering used the very first nitrogen mustards through intraarterial therapies, but they were toxic, of course. Um, and a guy named Ensminger at University of Michigan really studied the pharmacokinetics of hepatic artery chemotherapy. And there's some really, if you really get into the details of pump chemotherapy, uh, he's a a pretty landmark figure because he figured out that floxyuridine was essentially completely extracted by the liver. Uh, So it was a, you know, and if you think about the way um, to deliver regional chemotherapy, the idea, of course, is to give high-dose chemotherapy to a single organ without exposing the whole body to it, uh, you know, like limb infusions, the same idea, and where you can mechanically isolate an organ... Which was done at the nih for years, they would do you know uh isolated perfusion of the liver, but you had to
3: mm-hmm.
2: this big operation, clamp the cava, uh, you know, cannulate the portal vein yeah. uh and create a circuit. Um, but flux essentially does it biochemically. You just infuse it to the artery, and it's it's you know, if I infuse FUDR, the doses we typically infuse into the liver, you will not feel a thing. You will not feel any side effects whatsoever. Okay. Of course that resulted in the the problem that uh, biliary toxicity, because the the biliary tree gets its blood supply from the the arteries. Um, So that's the drug we've used. Um, We did study mitomycin a little bit before my time, but it had very high biliary toxicity. We occasionally will use mitomycin through the pump. Um, That's really based on some old studies. And and although we haven't done it, I'm sure you're familiar, the French have used oxaliplatin through the pump, but it doesn't really give you much of a pharmacokinetic advantage. Interestingly, when you give oxaliplatin through the pump through an arterial system of some sort to the liver, um, you get neuro uh, neurotoxicity just like you do with systemic oxaliplatin. So it's um, although some of their data is quite inspired, quite quite good, it's uh, it doesn't have that pharmacokinetic advantage that FUDR really has. So we've stuck with it since the late 1970s. <laughs> yeah.
3: Interesting. I the question I've already always known, and I apologize if this is a naive question because I've never done it, but what about, other than biliary toxicity, what about actual just, you know, chemo, chemotherapy-associated liver injury, like if you put oxaloplatin through the pump? I mean, clearly, that's what we talk about a lot, and we're very yeah. about that a lot. It's important for our patients, but you know, that's something I always think about is, is what does the liver look like between these different agents, and how do you know how much a patient can tolerate, that sort of thing?
2: Well, it's really fascinating. You know, as as everybody in the HPV field knows, this, you know, this, the... You know, oxaliplatin, the typical colorectal cancer drugs are very hepatotoxic. Uh, yeah. You know, you can develop real portal hypertension. You can develop real steatohepatitis and you can develop cirrhosis. Um, and that's a real problem. Interestingly, and it's kind of fascinating to me where you FUDR into the hepatic artery, again, providing high dose chemotherapy into an organ um, is not at all toxic, toxic to the hepatic parenchyma. And I have seen examples of uh, portal hypertension from oxaliplatin, you know, where the, where the umbilical vein is patent, you know, real portal mm-hmm. hypertension. Yeah, seriously. And you, you put a pump in and you take away the oxaliplatin and you watch their liver disease, forget the cancer, you watch their liver disease get better. Mm-hmm. So it's a really, it's not, it's a bit counterintuitive. You know, you would think high dose yeah. chemotherapy would, would just destroy the organ, but the hepatocytes and the parenchyma of the liver handle it fine. The, the Achilles heel is the biliary tree. Mm-hmm. But it's really interesting. I mean, you have to think about it almost in complete isolation. The liver itself is fine. It's biliary strictures very specifically that are the problem. Right. So it's it's actually, we actually use it as a way to spare systemic therapy in a way. I've seen patients guess, yeah. where they've had severe, you know, phatic toxicity. You can't really do much liver surgery on them. You put them on pump chemotherapy. And you watch you hold some of their systemic agents and you watch their liver get better and you watch the tumors be well controlled and then you can consider operating it's a very counterintuitive
3: yeah that's an interesting concept too like the chemo the systemic chemo break if you will while maintaining regional control um so if if a patient so somebody with um and we can talk about indications in terms of uh disease tumor tumor burden a little bit later but someone comes into to your office in 2020 they're getting what are they getting in, in the pump and what are they getting systemically and yeah. how much
2: yeah so the 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 pump dosing has been the same for 20 years you know yeah. you, you could look it up it's, it's the same dose yeah, i got it here um, and the systemic <laughs> therapy is um you know, it's funny. It has to do with our practice, which is, you know, they come to us after having had some therapy, usually. Right. Yeah. So it's totally dependent on what their responses were or whether they're progressing or. Um, so I think the systemic therapy, honestly, you you give everything you can. The Nancy Kemeny approach, which we've all adopted, is, is really to, to give everything you can. Five of you is almost always part of it. You can give five a few oxaliplatin and a rhenotecan as a first-line therapy with incredibly high response rates. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually by the time they've gotten to us, you know, they have trouble feeling their fingers from all the oxaliplatin. And so um, that, that often gets held, and it's sort of full fury and pump. And occasionally we'll just do pump alone when someone's really exhausted their uh, their, their systemic options.
1: So, if you had a chemo naive patient with unresectable liver meds, yeah, what would your yeah, what would your regimen of choice? Would you do full foxyri plus pump, or what would your go-to be?
2: Yeah, I mean that's you know the first line therapy. It's it, you might hold the five if you, but you give your can, oxaliplatin and pump, and the response rates are 90 plus percent. Right, major major 90, response.
3: Ninety-two, yeah, ninety-two in one of the recent papers. Amazing, yeah, one of the papers.
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's it's sometimes, you know, if you don't respond to that first-line therapy in an untreated patient, you wonder if the pump's working. You know, it's so uncommon to not see some sort of response. But, you know, it's interesting because, first of all, we don't see a lot of them in the first line. Right. But it's actually, you know, when you first, it feels very unnatural to see a patient who's just been diagnosed and say, let's go to the operating room, you know, with liver metastases, and let's go to the operating room and maybe take out your colon tumor and, put a pump in. I'm sure you guys could imagine that. That feels a little funny, right? The natural response is give them chemo. And, and honestly, it yeah. does happen. You know, it's sort of more practical sometimes. Um, yeah. But the truth is that first line therapy is pretty damn good.
1: That's so incredible. just a couple of follow-up questions on, on what you talked about there. So as far as the biliary complications, are there predictors of that? Are there patients you worry more about, worry less about? How do you, you know, is there a patient where you'll you'll check them more closely or pull back on the dose? I mean, you said the dosing has been pretty standard, but do you ever decrease the dose because you're really worried about that complication or
2: yeah. anything like that? You know, we've studied this and we're actually in the midst of re-looking at this. I don't have an answer on the updated data yet, but the last time we published it, first of all, the first split when you think about biliary toxicity and functional therapy is, whether you had a resection or you just placed the pump. If you place the pump without a resection, the risk of serious biliary toxicity, and I'll get to the dose reduction in a second, is very low, one or two percent. And when I say serious, meaning like you developed jaundice, you needed a stent. Mm. Um with resection, that number gets up closer to five percent. Um it, we don't really know why. I mean we, we've speculated forever. Maybe there's some devascularization of the biliary tree when you start cutting out pieces of liver. Um, it, it's really unclear. We used to think that uh, ligating accessory-replaced arteries was a problem. That's not really a problem. Um, uh, for us, the last time we looked at it, the best thing we could figure out was that it's, it's purely dose-related. And we're constantly thinking about changing the dosing a little bit, but we haven't really gotten to it. Yet in a meaningful way Um, so the key though when you talk about that the key is the person who's giving the pump and i should say that i'm not giving the chemotherapy this is you know in our hospital it's a medical oncologist we have graduated fellows who have done it on their own it it wouldn't work well into my time constraints but um uh knowing and the algorithms are published But there are very specific algorithms based on alkaline phosphatase and bilirubin where you dose dose reduce or or hold um and we've actually discussed it a lot in terms of adjuvant therapy maybe we need to give less maybe we need to just only treat them for three months maybe one dose is enough these are questions that are unanswered but but possible um and so recognizing that biliary toxicity early Is really key. So you know that's the when someone's developing a program, I say, look, I can teach you how to do the operation, and there are little tricks. And believe me, I get calls all the time. What do I do with this? What do I do with that? But managing that, the the thing that will that will kill a program is if you have excessive biliary toxicity, because believe me, they can be horrible. They can be really horrible. Um, And if that number is too high, then everybody's going to walk away from it. So you need someone who really knows how to do it. I encourage them all to come and spend a week with our medical oncologist and watch them do it. And you know, because it's one thing to read an algorithm, but there's another bit to the nuance of, uh, right. you know, really the practice of things. Just like surgery, it's like reading an, an atlas is fine, but doing an operation is a bit different. Um, so, so I think it's it's really critical. And I think there are still unanswered dosing questions that we might be able to tackle.
3: Interesting. So I think we we touched on a couple things there that we want to expand upon. Maybe we can just start this way. When I think about the, when I think about pump chemotherapy um, and any chemotherapy in general, but when I think about pump chemotherapy. There's preoperative. There's adjuvant. There's initially unresectable that we hope to get to the operating room, and clearly that has a de- the definition of that really matters. Um, and then also unresectable, but maybe the liver is most of the tumor burden and they're never really going to become a surgical candidate but in 2020 actually i don't know if that's how often that you can it's almost like we'll see what happens with chemo and discuss yeah. later if it's really unresectable what is the opt like what is dr d'angelica's oh. most optimal application of this of this technology because it, it, it seems like it could this be is, applied all over uh, very very often
2: this is one of my favorite questions the fellows ask me this question all the time yeah and uh and i (laughs) what's the indication you know like they'd expect me to say well if it's three tumors or it's four or this or that or and my answer is in a very sort of new york obnoxious way is metastatic colorectal cancer to the liver and i stopped talking
1: that was going to be the answer (laughs) maybe the better question is In your eyes, who should not get a hepatic artery infusion? Yeah.
2: So, I mean, I think, uh, you know, of course, you break every rule. But I think a really good rule where you should really start thinking about it is if there's extra hepatic disease, we have a hard time showing much of a benefit. Um, Do we break that rule? Yes, we do, of course. Usually after a substantial period of time on systemic therapy. We sometimes do it with bulky liver disease and low-volume lung disease, but but it's it's not proven. You know, that's sort of the, the art of practice. Uh, but I think all those other options are, are great ones. I mean, adjuvant therapy is a whole discussion in and of itself. From my perspective, it's the only proven adjuvant therapy. That's a debate. Um, the drugs we give all the time are not proven to improve overall survival. Um, for unre- We don't really use it in a typical neoadjuvant fashion. It wouldn't really in my mind, it makes sense to do an operation and place something that's technically resectable and then come back. Uh, you know, there's a, right. a so we, we very rarely use it as a neoadjuvant therapy. We use it for unresectable disease. So, uh, and I, I think, that, you know, yes, if you have a great response, you can take them all out. That's great. Um, that often requires, you know, sort of two-stage resections, intraoperative ablations, and, you know, things like that. There are situations that you raise where there's such extensive liver disease. You, you, you look to yourself and you say, right, "How could this ever become resectable?" And for me, that's about. And this is what I say to patients: If if some of your tumors disappear, if some of your tumors are complete radiologic responses, we may think about resecting residual disease. It's really hard to study that. It's really hard to prove that works. Mm-hmm. But what I can prove is that when things disappear on pump chemotherapy, they're much more likely to be either durable CRs or uh, pathologic CRs Then, if things are not visible on systemic therapy. So there's probably something to chemotherapy truly curing some disease. It's amazing. So we, we definitely use it in that. And I, I'd say we're very uh, considering surgery in patients with extensive disease once they've been treated with pump chemotherapy for a while. It often requires some pretty creative liver surgery, though.
3: I mean, I would think that, I would think there almost has to be no better feeling when someone came in with a lot of tumor burden and everyone around the world told them you can't get an operation. And then you're able to say, we got this to the point that I think we can go to the operating room. Um, oh, yeah. That's going to be quite sure. remarkable. That'll probably be transformative. I mean, we we see that obviously with, with some patients with systemic chemotherapy and, and all different types of approaches with that, and that. And that's a very good feeling, but it seems like, when looking at the data, that the, the response rates are much higher, but in the conversion to resection—I was just looking just briefly at some of the full Fox series data, which is our like you know conversion therapy. Um, it's what about about 10% higher in your 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 series than in the best pooled analyses of full Fox series, for example.
2: Yeah, conversion to resection is a really tricky thing to study. It's a subjective decision. Yeah, it's a, definitely- it's a matter. Of- it's a matter of what you decide is resectable. Like if I'm leaving things behind that uh, sort of radiologic CRs, does that count? Um, there's so much to that. And, and I've gone back and looked at some of the conversion literature and, you know, seen patients with single tumors considered unresectable. It would be pretty rare that a single tumor would ever be unresectable. You know, that would be a very rare thing. Um, so it, it's really hard to know what, how people are counting. And, you know, we did our, our single arm trial of unresectable disease. And, you know, what I would say is, trust me, they were unresectable, but, you know, I think that's variable. <laughs> right. You know, they, they had a mean of a uh, median of like 12 or 13 tumors. And, um, you know, but about one in seven of those 65 patients on that trial, we think are cured. Um, they've been uh, almost five years NED, um, which which to me gets to what you were saying, Tim, about that, that feeling. I mean, to get those people to that I was going to say my favorite feeling is actually years a few years after their last resection and their NED and you take out the pump that is the best feeling in the world
3: oh you actually kind of bring them
2: you kind of bring them back to that place the operating room Mm -hmm. it's a minor operation they go home the same day and you know and it's a, it's um that's that's an amazing feeling and you look it's always a time also to reflect you go back and look at their journey where they started how they got there and um uh it's it's uh it's an exciting day for everybody. Even even the nurses in the in the operating room are like, "Wow!" Even the anesthesiologists would be like, "You know, I scrubbed on this second stage resection you did, and I remember this this woman, this man, and uh, oh wow!" And of course, some of them are young and have children, and it gets very emotional. But it's um, yeah, of course. So that's that's what we all live for. Yeah, for sure. Yeah,
3: it's like Rich ringing the bell, your, your, the the completion bell. Well, um, so how often do people do you see people who don't don't get a pump per se? I mean, I understand it's a very valuable instrument, but do 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 a major, and I wouldn't say majority, but it'll do a large number of patients that you see. Is there a place in your mind for just systemic chemotherapy uh, for conversion to resection, for example, or to test biology or before undergoing uh, liver resection?
2: For sure. I mean, I think. Uh... It's highly individualized. I, I I would love to say there's a perfect algorithm for it, but there isn't. Of yeah. course, um, I actually you know I really subscribe to that. You you have your tools, and you, how you use them is 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 somewhat artistic at times, not rather than prescriptional. And um, yeah, of course we use tons of systemic chemotherapy. And who, it, people, every paper we publish, we're asked who gets a pump, who doesn't. It's a highly individualized decision. Some patients want it, some yeah. patients don't. Um, yeah, but I think if a patient comes to you who's kind of borderline resectable and with a short course of systemic therapy in response, you can get them to resection. That, that's much simpler than putting in a pump and, and doing it. Uh, so I, I think those those situations we use it very frequently.
3: And and that, was, and that was kind of a lead-in question because in my mind, when I think about this, I would I would say kind of as an outsider because I've never done it, um, to be honest. But the idea of regional control. For a systemic disease is fascinating. Uh, for any disease, not not just colorectal liver meds, but I mean, just regional therapies in, in all surgical oncology is a very fascinating field. And so I try to think to myself, what is the who is the population of patients that are um, you know ripe for regional control? And it'd be somebody who I would think has like proven or at least has signs that they're going to be somebody who has predominantly liver disease. And judging that is so hard to me because we have very vague clinical factors to predict that at this point in time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, well, first of all, colorectal cancer is unique. Um, I'm old enough to remember that nobody really believed that the resection of liver metastases was a potentially curative operation. We and many others have shown that's true. So it can be a truly regionally confined metastatic disease. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a simple thing to say. Everybody shakes their head and says, oh, yes, but that's extremely uncommon in cancer. That stage four disease is sort of is isolated to a single organ. So it's a unique cancer. Um, We, you know, it's pretty sad because I think I've looked for a biomarker to predict liver only disease, but it's, it's very hard to find, you know, whether you're looking at genomics or clinical factors. If that could be found, that would be the ideal situation for pump chemotherapy. If you could do a blood test, you know, sequence a gene in the tumor that could tell you this, you'd you know you're the liver-only person. Let's go, you know, or you're not. Yeah. Um, you know, BRAF gets at that. KRAS mutations get a little bit at that, but they're not perfect. Maybe right. BRAF gets there, but but they're not perfect. Um, and so time and and observing these people the, the sort of basic concepts of surgical oncology time is your ally in in a way in in, in making decisions uh, so that's you know sadly that's kind of what we use the basics of that but i i think um if we had a biomarker that could that could predict who the right person is that would be amazing unfortunately yeah, that, yeah. accurate biomarkers are rare certainly
3: um, and that I guess that's another good segue just to talk about some of the, the the more recent publications looking at predictors of outcomes with pump chemotherapy and biology. And and I'll just make a comment and maybe you can elaborate on it that it's just interesting that the underlying biology of of the disease is similar and it's kind of showing that you know it really comes down to individual tumor biology. And yeah, there's probably different tools like you said to get people a different way, but this cancer is quite a beast. So. Um, BRAF, and then the people I think who had the the worst survival in the most recent series were the commutes, right? The RAS Mm -hmm. and the TP53 commutes. Yeah. It's it's amazing how consistent that data is becoming, however you you approach it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've actually, I'm always, you know, I think biomarkers, I think surgeons are quick to jump on biomarkers uh, and sometimes too quick to jump on biomarkers. And I think tumor genomics is a good example of that. I mean, for years I went to meetings and I presented, a, you know, I'd be presenting a case for something or whatever, and uh, I'd say, what's the? They'd say, what's the KRAS status? And, and I'd say, you know, again in typical obnoxious New Yorker fashion, I would say, uh, who? Why do you care? You know, and, and, and you know, yes, the KRAS mutated patients do a little worse than KRAS wild type patients, but so do people with three tumors versus one tumor. You know, so we've had biomarkers like this for a long time um and so you have to you have you know the, the key thing that people forget about biomarkers it has to be shown to be clinically relevant it has to be externally validated across institutions it's an incredibly high uh, um, uh barrier to to sort of prove them but i do think that the ras p53 chem commutation is probably something that's real uh that, that is very consistent across and and, it, and the outcomes are pretty poor uh, mm. There probably are exceptions, just like there are exceptions to BRAF. But um, uh, I always do feel like in these situations, phenotype probably does trump genotype. Uh, You know, so if you have the terrible genotype, but you're presenting over the course of a significant period of observation with something that looks totally different. You know, the BRAF mutated patient who's somehow got limited liver and resectable disease and, you, you know, you drag your feet and drag your feet. And they just look like the exception. They probably are the exception because you know, genes and penetrance, right? I mean, it's not all so straightforward just because you're measuring a gene uh, in a in tumor. Yeah, so don't ignore the, long ignore long the long presentation, long. you know.
1: So practically, does that change your change anything for you? You know, if you have a, a patient who's a co-mutant, um, you know, does it change? your application of the pump do you think well this patient's more likely to have extra hepatic disease even though i don't see it right now or do you treat them the same and then like you said you sort of watch and see what happens
2: yeah i think i think for co-mutants even for RAF patients we'll drag our feet a little bit before sort of pulling the trigger to to sort of go for the local regional approaches and really test them a little longer than someone else i I can't sit here and tell you that's perfect i can't tell you that's a perfect approach but but I, i think it's reasonable to do um
1: what is in that in that scenario what's the downside to putting a pump in in, in then the patient develops extra hepatic disease i mean it, i mean obviously it's a procedure every procedure has risks etc but what's your your mindset there
2: well the downside is the morbidity of the procedure and the, and the chemo to the liver and that's that's real it's added um yeah and also you know sort of if you had a view to them developing extra hepatic disease we know from the patients who present with extra hepatic disease the benefit is much less so, it, sure. it's a bit of an extrapolation, but probably the benefit becomes less. Um, okay. But I, I think we all would like to believe, especially as a group who really pursues a lot of regional therapies, that control of bulky regional disease can prolong life. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily cure people. Um, and I actually think about that a lot in terms of outcomes that are relevant. You know, we always look at. Um, outcomes, and we just look at overall survival curves, but there's a whole story behind an overall survival curve that um, is not really talked about, and this is, you know, the way I'll talk to fellows. Uh, There's the 75-year-old who's had three grandkids, and, you know, it's the, the, and who you want to talk to about what the outcome of interest to them is, and then there's the 40-year-old with a two-year-old child, and your goals of therapy may be completely different. The 40-year-old may say, I don't care if you can't cure me. I want to be around for another six or seven years. And if you can do that for me, you know, and then it gets to very difficult and emotional conversations. Like, I just want my child to grow up enough that he or she remembers me. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I, and I've had these conversations with young patients, and these are brutal situations, right? I mean, these are brutal. But I'll sign on to that. Like, I'll sort of push the envelope because they just want to be alive for as long as possible. But if you're yeah, 80 you Know maybe we're talking about something different, you know, when maybe we're not sort of in that mode of let's just keep you going as long as possible, and so that's where I think you break the rules a bit. Um, because you, 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 um, your, your goals change, your goals of care change, and that is not explained by overall survival curves. I think we sometimes get lost in that, and uh, you know, the goals of care can really vary according to that. And I, you know, I, it's funny, in my clinic, I have to remind the fellow that the median age of uh, diagnosis of colorectal cancer is closer to 70 because it feels like it's about 38 in my clinic you know because it's just a selection bias they come they're the they're the people who are looking for aggressive this or that you know
3: yeah yeah well i mean certainly kicking the can so to speak is valuable for a lot of reasons i mean i feel like a lot a lot of studies that we talk about um, for this disease, there's a lot of improvements in disease-free survival. And then everyone always says that the overall survival didn't get impacted, so it's not valuable. And I don't know if that's the right
2: way to interpret that, quite frankly. Yeah, I think that's a matter of discussion with a patient. It's, uh, yeah. it's hard and to I quantify. Think,
1: I think, it, you know, it, again, not having experience with the pump, but it sounds like if, if you had to choose between full fox and the pump, your quality of life maybe is a little better while you're getting pump chemo. Uh, and so maybe some time off of systemic is uh, is valuable for those patients as well.
2: Oh, I agree. It's it's another tool in your pocket to sort of spare systemic toxicity, for sure. Yeah. For sure.
3: I, again, yeah. for I just to rally back to the you know the heavily treat treated patients. You know, this is another arrow in your quiver. I, uh, one one of our, our mentors, um, Dr. Aloya. Um, talks about one of one of the things he published a while ago, and kind of how we think about things is uh, being a Swiss Army knife rather than a hammer. So yeah, this is a I think great, that's
2: great uh, opportunity. Well, that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the way I think about chemotherapy, it adds another blade, right? And another can opener or whatever you put in your Swiss Army knife, for sure. And that's actually the way I explain it to patients. It's like this is just another tool we can use. Um, it, it's not meant to be the answer. It's meant to be part of the answer. Interestingly, in the middle of all this, I'm getting a text from someone (laughs) about a pump catheter problem from another institution.
3: (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Well, yeah, tell Josh to hold on. You can talk to him after
2: we're done. Good friend of ours. It is is Um, interesting, you know, to think about how it's become so popular. I keep saying what's old is new again, Um, and I'm not sure what happened. I think – you know, the way 5FU felt in the 1980s, I guess, is full fox and Fulfuri furious starting to feel to people. We're not getting as much out of it as we wanted. And, yeah. and they're looking for something else. And um, what, what stopped all the fellows used to leave our program and say, we're going to start a pump program. And it never happened, it just never happened. And that's because it requires a team and they just get people to sign on to it. And yeah. uh, now people are interested, which is kind of interesting. It's kind of fascinating to me to watch.
3: Get into that earlier, but like regional therapies are becoming very—they have always been uh, popular, but you know the advent of more and more high-tech for things and, and liver—it's just some part of our approach in surgical oncology these days. Go ahead, Tim.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the questions we had listed was, you know, after this half an hour conversation with you, we're we're converts on pump. So what's next? You know, what do we? What's the biggest yeah, challenge? What, really what what is the, you know? What do you do if you want if you're interested in starting a pump program uh what's your advice to those people and kind of you know should they just be sending everything to specialized centers or do you think that this is something that can be you know spread and democratized a little bit so that more patients have access to it
2: Yeah I mean the first thing to start a program is is to get buy-in from everybody and it's it's team building like everything Um I, I do think that things like HIPEC took off without a lot of proof Um because it really required, I guess, two things, a willing surgeon and someone just to refer the patient. But the other people didn't really have to do much. You had to do an operation and you could do it all in the operating room and then get them through. And and you really didn't need, yes, you needed people to help with complications and stuff, but that was their job. That was nothing unique, Um, whereas pub chemotherapy really requires a medical oncologist, a surgeon to work together. you know, and then a lot of people familiar with things that are, you know, second nature to us, but not familiar with, if you don't do it, you know, the interventional radiologist to manage some extra hepatic perfusion, a, a GI doctor to manage some sub- biliary stricture. Um, so team building is critical. What centers should do it? I suspect uh, it, it shouldn't, you know, it can be definitely be done in any major medical center. That's for sure. Um should it be done in small community oncology practices? I'm not so sure. Uh, it's possible to do, but probably as it rolls out. And I mean, you know, uh, it should be in the major medical centers where it's really developed. I, I think um, you know we, we've just started a pump consortium. There's almost 30 centers.
3: Yeah, right. So about for that. me,
2: for me, I think the um, the key thing is to show feasibility in other centers, which I think will show. That's already kind of been done. And then to do meaningful trials, whether it's mm. unique combinations of therapies, whether it's uh, an adjuvant trial, which would be a real challenge, or sort of like a second line trial. I mean, this is a, my favorite publication about pump chemotherapy, we couldn't get into a journal. It was a, it was a group of patients, it was retrospective, it was about, I forget the number of patients, but they, they were completely refractory to every known systemic therapy, to colorectal pain. And, yes, they had to be young enough and healthy enough to make it to, to Memorial Sloan Kettering. So there was that selection for sure. But we, we put in pumps in these patients. So they, they had either pump or the phase one clinic. And most people don't know this, but the response rate in the phase one clinic is about 1% all covers. Yep. Right? Most of those drugs don't work. Same here. Yeah. And so um, we put pumps in those patients, and the response rates were 30%. Now, I can select patients who can live longer, right, young, healthy people. They can survive. But I cannot select patients for a response, especially ke- totally chemorefractive disease. And amazingly, we couldn't get this published. It's published in the Journal of Surgical Oncology. We couldn't get it. It took us a long time to get it published. If I had written that paper as sort of like some unique immunotherapy, it would have been in the New England Journal of Medicine.
3: Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, it's like you you failed if you failed regorafenib, and now like, what else? <laughs>
1: yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, why do you a think that? Clinic.
1: Why do you think that is? You know, I, I mean, I I do feel like there's yeah. people. We're probably guilty of it because we trained at Anderson, right? Like there are people who are in these camps and don't seem to want to want to move. And you know, even just reading for this interview, you know, there's a lot of data out there about pumps, and it all looks pretty promising. Um, you know, what do you think it's going to take to get over the hump where more people get this message? You know, what do you think is? Why do you think that bias is there, and what do you think is going to overcome it?
2: Yeah, I don't know why that bias is. It's the it's the I, I think it's the um I don't know, it's a, it's a weakness of human beings, uh, you know. <laughs> we, That's gonna it's going to be hard, hard to, for us to get over ourselves, right? I probably oversell it and I as I'm talking to you I keep thinking, start focusing on the negative a little bit. It's not all perfect, you know. I can tell you some disaster stories for sure. And that should be part of the conversation. Um uh, I, these things are funny. I mean, I've debated people about pump chemotherapy at institutions that don't do it. And the debate back was things like, well, it just hasn't been accepted. I'm like, that, that's not a debate. That's not an intellectual argument. But, you know, that that's, that's just whatever. I mean, that doesn't mean something's wrong. Um, there are lots of things that would not just accept it, you know, that <laughs> should have been accepted. I'm sure you could think historically of many of those. Um so I don't know what has to happen. Things, things are funny. They, they come in waves, and they come in waves of popularity that are, don't necessarily reflect the data of the time. Uh, and I don't know why that is. I, I think it's hard to shift the way you do things, right? It's also like uh, minimally invasive surgery, right? Do I want to do robotic ripples? No, I really don't, you know, because I'd have to relearn how to do something. It's painful. I don't have the time. Should I do it? Probably, yeah, I probably should, because that's the way surgery is going to be done. And if you don't see that, then you don't see what's coming. You know, it's going to be some version of that. So yeah. it's hard. It's just hard to change your, your, um, and sometimes we all get stubborn in what we do. And I think um, yeah. that's bad. We all should be open-minded. But on the other hand, you know, as I was, the comment about stressing all the positive, uh, when you report things that you believe in, you you have to report the negative as well. And I think we try to do that. Probably not as well as we should, but we try to.
3: Yeah. I think that's right So I guess my last question before we let you go. I'm sorry, just one more minute is is what is what are the what are the the next steps for prospective studies for this? I mean, so I know that you're a huge lover of prospective studies, we all should be, but you're definitely one of the proponents of that with the clinical trials um uh, committee and, and, and are focused on that on the website with the HPVA, that's fantastic. Where do you see the future for prospective evidence with, with pump chemotherapy? And then number two, do you see a a real trial of this strategy versus modern systemic chemotherapy
2: randomized? Well, uh, first of all, I hate to correct you, but it's no longer modern.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I, yeah, that's, that was the argument in 2010,
2: but- It's 20 years old now. <laughs> yeah.
3: Okay, so basically what I want to know is-,
2: is I No, I, I'm mind. sorry, I couldn't help that.
3: <laughs> Can I change my <laughs> Oh, the interview's been very tame so far, so I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> an interview with Dr.
1: D'Angelica wouldn't be right if there wasn't some snarky I, I, yeah, comment. Yeah, but. the <laughs> amount
3: of reading that I've done for this
2: is ridiculous, but... I think here's the thing that's interesting, right? We did it, we, it was before my time. Nancy Kennedy did a, a single-arm randomized adjuvant trial, right. published in the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, updated with 10-year follow-up, Pretty positive trial. And th- I think the problem with that is that it was from one institution. Yeah. Right. And and so the temptation is, well, I'm not sure I really believe the data or it's it's only really done in this institution. And we're not going to be able to do it here. And so, I, you know, I have really evolved in my thinking about randomized trials because having done trials in our own institution, I realize they haven't had a huge impact. And I think to have an impact, you have to. Um, you have to get buy-in from everybody and and I think multi-center trials are really the way to do things like this so I mm-hmm. you know what we're doing with the pump consortium hopefully will be that you know that we'll get a group of people who can show they can do it and then you know we'll we can do trials where we're, if you know we're part of the trial in the memorial we would limit the number of patients we did yeah Um you know so that so that it's yeah. not just all one institution and I think that's the only way you can really convince people of things, you know. It, it, I, I I cite this trial all the time. So we study passerientide. Do you give passerientide for whipples? Yeah,
3: I know that. I know that we we don't give it, but I know what t- trial you're talking about. I so know
2: I have a paper pending
1: looking at our experience with passerientide <laughs> yeah, that shows it and didn't work. We know anywhere,
3: all so. about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Go so
1: ahead.
2: this is this is it, right? So Peter Allen does this, you know, amazing trial. It is if you read. Yeah. Facebook, it's randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, adequately powered. You, you can't supposedly, that's it, right? That's that's level one plus evidence. Yet, like maybe the paper you're writing, a lot of people go back and look at their retrospective experience and say it doesn't work. I'm like, well, wait a minute, what happened to our randomized trial? And I think the problem is that it was done in one institution. And I really believe that. People don't necessarily believe that it's it can be extrapolated to their institution. And I think there there may be something to that. And so the, developing this consortium, hopefully will allow us to really answer some multi-institutional questions, whether it's, you know, second line unresectable disease or adjuvant therapy, whatever, um, it, it probably doesn't matter. But as long as I, I, I've i really come around to this idea, I mean, you may have know, known that I've developed this NISQIP trial mechanism, which, um, I uh, I think it's fascinating because it got it gets all these institutions involved and I think the answer will be whatever that answer may be it's a simple question but it's it's it'll be applicable to everybody it'll be much more what's the word uh acceptable believable um applicable yeah. Yeah. pragmatic yeah. yeah do you do you yeah, worry? And I think right pragmatic for sure yeah
1: do you worry that you know, as a champion of pumps, let's say, do you worry that like maybe the other institutions won't do it as well, and then the trial will yeah. show that it doesn't make a difference, or yeah, and it, yeah. and you know if if that happens, then, then, then what do you do then? Yeah. Right. Well, no, I'll say you'll come to you Memorial. Are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean, may, maybe, the well, is, sure. maybe the reality <laughs> is maybe the reality is that you're better at it than other institutions. You know, I mean,
2: and there yeah, there could be. I'd be lying if I say mean, I don't worry about that. Of course I do. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Uh, hey, listen, I, I, I'm i not married to an idea. I think that's a really... Yeah. I, I think we should be married or, or to the truth, whatever that truth is. You know, great ideas are a dime a dozen, but the truth is the truth, and if you really are convinced about the truth, listen, it's possible it's disproven. That's fine, you know. I'll save an hour of my operations at that point, you know. I'll <laughs> do the resection and yeah. not put the pump uh, in at the end. Well,
3: I think... I think uh, I'll you know, I I get in trouble for saying this, but it would be it would be pretty compelling if if somebody were to who didn't do it for whatever reason and then started to do it and then was able to like randomize and and maybe change practice like that would be pretty compelling. Yeah. Yes. Yeah,
2: um, yeah you know? I think so. I, I really so think maybe so. And I think... to
3: come up and hang out so we can start learning how to do it.
2: <laughs> well, listen, we, we've had lots of descenders start programs and come up and do it, and for sure it's. Uh, I I I think you know when you talk about the medical oncologists, there's a term they use in early stage trials called a signal. You're right. You know, you do like a phase one trial and there's a signal that there's something. That, there's a huge signal that this is. When you when you talk about chemorefractory patients and a response rate of 30%, that is not a signal. That's a that's a blaring, screaming signal. You know, that's it's efficacious. But they're, you know, that's I think for sure. The question is whether it can be broadly applicable and whether it can be done safely and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's sort of working out where where, like you guys were alluding to, where, who are the right patients. And a lot of those are not questions we've answered yet, to be completely fair. Yeah.
1: Now now when you give so when you or when you're putting pump in after, you know, uh, let's say you took two Mets out, you know, a pretty limited resection, nothing crazy. And you're putting a pump in are you also giving systemic chemo i saw that the you know the netherlands trial is basically pump versus nothing in the adjuvant setting is that your practice
2: uh, uh and
1: i okay yeah, yeah so were we, you disappointed when you, saw the design.
2: when you saw the yeah, design of that trial
1: were you like ah why did they do that
2: yeah, yeah well, no, i thought it was fascinating because it, it'll, it'll it provides a trial that will never be done in the united states but okay. you have to realize the netherlands uh, we, we helped them develop that trial we actually Peter Kingham and I flew out there and helped them place pumps in the beginning. That was yeah, I, I a saw lot, that in a lot of fun.
1: They learned from you guys. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun.
2: And, and it was great. Of course it was one of our fellows. So it was really great. You know, it was really fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, a that's like a 1980s trial in the United States. There were those trials done in, in you know, the 1980s. Um, and the standard of care in the Netherlands, they, they are people who really, I have a lot of respect for how they interpret data, right? They don't just, they interpret adjuvant systemic therapy for early stage resectable metastatic colorectal cancer as negative. Like there's no difference. Mm. And that's really what the data shows, um, you know, power issues aside. But uh, so they, their standard of care is surgery alone. Yeah. And so when they design a trial, if they're going to get funded for their trial, they, that's got to be their standard arm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's that's kind of I, I give them credit for that. It'll answer a very interesting question.
3: So we interviewed Dr. Bessling very early on and it was mind blowing how he said that, you know, they had such great accrual for things like their leopard trials and things like that, because if you wanted to have that technology, it had to be on trial. So you had to sign up for it. and Maybe you would get it or not, um, which is fascinating.
2: So that's, that's a huge issue for us, right? So say we want to do a randomized trial. Obviously people come to us from all over the country, all over the world for this. And, uh, if you start doing whatever treatment, experimental treatment you want to study in a randomized trial, off of trial, it gets very hard to recruit patients. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Certainly. So we're, we're going to have to yeah. tackle that when we get to that point. <laughs> so I wanted to answer your other question about it. So our standard is to give some yeah, sort right. of systemic therapy with the pump. And I think there's lots of single arm data that shows that really is efficacious or shows a really potential to be very efficacious. I should be careful yeah. how I word that. So uh, it all depends on what they've received before, you know, in terms of what the systemic component is. Um, and, and the other interesting thing I wanted to bring up, and this comes up still in our tumor boards, um, you said oh, all straightforward resection. A lot of people who present with a single met, easily resectable, the temptation is to say why, why put a pump in? It's such low stage disease. And I think we've lost track of the fact that that patient still has a very high recurrence rate, even single mets. Yeah. Um, so the adjuvant strategies really matter, and what we found—well, I want to say this—it's sort of interesting. You know, the one paper that really got us got pumped back on the on the uh, on people's minds was our publication in the JCO, which was a retrospective paper comparing mm-hmm. adjuvant and systemic pump chemotherapy. You know, right. it had propensity scoring and so forth, but it was retrospective. Yeah, right. right. But it got published in the medical oncology bible. Yeah. Right. That had tremendous impact, which is kind of funny to me because it doesn't change the fact that it's retrospective, Um, but it definitely got it on people's minds. But what we did, what I learned from that paper was not the difference in survival. We had seen that forever. Um, The the interesting thing was when you looked at the magnitude of difference between adjuvant pump versus adjuvant systemic, the magnitude got larger, the earlier the stage of disease in the liver. So... Mm -hmm say like the, the clinical score, like no negative primaries, mm-hmm. uh, low you know, small tumors, single tumors, metachronous tumors. And as you got to sort of higher risk disease, the magnitude of difference was smaller and smaller until you got to the point where there was extra hepatic disease and you saw no difference. And mm-hmm. it was remarkably consistent. It was remarkably, you could plot it perfectly. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to me, it doesn't always feel right. You feel like this left lateral segment for a single tumor, like, ah, oh, man, do I really want to add anything to this? That patient probably, we think, maybe be one of the benefits the most. And if you look at the Dutch trial, they actually are only including low-risk patients right. based on that paper.
3: Yeah, yeah, right. we, were, we were talking about that. So, but, the, but it makes sense when we, just to loop back to another one of the things we said about increasing the disease-free interval, uh, maybe someday that interval increase will impact overall survival in a meaningful way. I mean sure. if that person is deemed gonna that they are somebody who's gonna recur, but we can push it further back and they're only gonna recur in the liver, not systemically, then it's gotta impact overall survival, right? Like it's crazy, well, just it's, it's have a, to add up.
2: It's a know? fascinating question. Whether disease free survival is a surrogate for overall survival is a fascinating Eventually question.
3: Eventually it has to be, yeah. right?
2: Yeah. Eventually. Well, I don't know. It's, it it was a recent publication in stage two and three colon cancer that it wasn't a good surrogate. But this is all comers, so there may be a subset that it is. We're actually trying to look at it in the resected patients because we have a huge data set. Um, it's a tough analysis; it's a statistical challenge. But uh, yeah, surrogate endpoints for overall survival. Uh, we we always say the patient only cares about one thing, is so that's whether they're alive or not. But um,
1: true,
2: There's no, probably a little I'm more sure. than that.
1: And in that adjuvant setting, you're not changing the dose of the pump chemo. I mean, that's a patient where, you you, you know, I'd be really scared to hurt them, you know. Yes. Yeah. And so that's the fear. So do you think, I, I feel that fear. Yeah.
2: But you don't change sure. the
1: dose. I mean, do you Do you think about decreasing the dose at all? Or is that something you guys are looking into or anything like that? No.
2: Very unofficially, uh, we, there are some patients who have been extensively pre-treated with systemic therapy. And sometimes with pump for undersecretary disease. And they'll get... A shorter, a shorter course, so that's, okay um, the dose per cycle may be the same, but the cumulative dose may be different, right, if you only treat for three yeah. months we 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 can't prove that that makes a difference yet, but but it, it may, yeah, it may, you know there's lots of uh, adjuvant trials in stage three colon cancer that three months of treatment or six cycles Yeah, is right, as efficacious as right. twelve, so it, it yeah. probably is the same here.
3: Yeah, there's just a, a just a, re- a reappraisal
2: of the idea, right? It's just huge. Yeah, I mean the price okay. to pay with that oxaliplatin is real. I mean neuropathy is a yeah. Patients.
3: Yeah, I think I think these amaz- these are amazing opportunities to have more tools in our in our uh, bag of tricks, combined with better selection as we move forward. Is I I feel like if we just keep kicking the can down the road. It's gonna ma- it's gonna start moving it. Moving over, so We're overall, driver's Ticker. That's just
2: how well, I feel about it. But. What gets me out of bed in the morning? Are you kidding me? This is the greatest job in the world. It's the best. It really, it really is. It really is. Well, so this, is, um, this,
1: this has been this has been mildly therapeutic. Not having gone to a meeting in like a year, you know, it's nice yeah, to like have these conversations. I don't know. This conversation is making me miss in-person meetings for sure.
2: Oh my gosh, yeah. I can uh, tell you yeah.
3: that HPVA in August is going to be off the hook.
2: I think you're right. We're all going to be vaccinated. vaccinated. Yeah. We're all going to be vaccinated, yeah. and they're going to be – it, it doesn't matter whether it's going to be 110 degrees. And, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's it's an enjoyable part of what we do. It really is. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. Well, we really appreciate your time in educating us, and maybe we'll come back for another interview later after Tim and I have done a few of these.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, think you, I think this is great. I think people are going to love it. I think this is um, – you know, I've started experimenting a little bit with Twitter and Facebook and social media, which I kind of, I think it's the loneliness of being, you know, locked in my house and at work that sort of prompted me to do it. I think there's dangers to it. You know, there's there's bad information that gets out there. You just have to read the newspaper to realize that. But um, it is an interesting way that people will communicate, and you guys are obviously in touch with that. Um, you know i'm i'm getting older and it doesn't come naturally to me and sometimes i read these things i'm like my god really do you, is that what you really all you want to say And, you know but uh, but it has great potential to be very effective and i think the better we use it uh, the more effective we'll be yeah it's great yeah,
1: yeah. well the, the last thing last thing we wanted to ask you about is you are the uh, hpba president elect so um you know one any kind of just Things for this is mostly young members who are going to be uh, involved here. So any you know career advice or things like that for the young members, and then two kind of what you're hoping to accomplish in your year as president. You know if you thought about that and, and kind of anything you want to put out as far as that goes.
2: Yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited to to, to do this. I mean, the idea of that uh, of me even being in this position honestly was just something that I would never even have thought about. Uh, if you saw me as a young person, for sure. So it's an incredible, incredible privilege. Um, I, I think, you know, the way I think about the AHPBA, there's a few really important things. Number one, to put on a great meeting. And that goes without saying, but it's a really important thing to do. It's, it's, it's probably the main thing that we do. Um, I think providing, and this has been happening for the last few years, I think providing opportunities for the younger people, rather than seeing the same old uh HPB people around all the time is really critical. Getting the right people to start stepping back, including myself and and just, you know, letting other people really get up there and speak their mind uh, is really critical. I think the things that we've started working on about diversity is super important. Um and we've just got to be an open and welcoming society and really work the pipeline such that we're not all the same culture, you know, that but that we're open to everybody. And I think we have to take part in that. really critical, take a critical role in that. Um, and I think, you know, uh, it's interesting. I was on a call recently where someone referred to the HPBA as a, I hope this person doesn't listen to this uh, podcast, but um, as a, as a cut and sell kind of society. And I have to say, when I first started um, coming to the HPBA years ago, it was that, it was a lot of videos. It was a lot of crazy operations. It didn't make any sense as an oncologist. And I, and I, I think you know, if I want to do one thing, I want it to be a, a society that's, you know, hey, the greatest technical surgeons, but also a society that really hangs their hat on the data, that we can sit and we can talk about the data. It's hard for me to sort of describe that in a word or a sentence, but I I, I really sure. want to make it less of a show and tell and more of a data driven group of people who really, because we think about what we do. We deal with the, the toughest cancers, the toughest diseases. And uh, we're slowly starting to get, you know, great prospective data into, into what we do and um, having people just sort of saying, well, this is the way I suture a paper duck together. I, less of that, more data, well, yeah. more really evidence-based approach, you know. So that's, that's the yeah. whole, hopefully what we can accomplish. Yeah, that
3: well, we really appreciate you know, your time, like I said, and looking forward to talking to you more and obviously looking forward to our August HPVA. It's going to be awesome. I'll see you there.